0: I'm finna put all this in my book bag because I'm from the streets. Yeah, yeah. Boom, what's going on? It's your boy Ambition. And today with me, I have what I would consider to be a musical genius. He's been able to convince me of that within the five minutes before we started this uh, podcast, right? Uh, So he started uh, in the 1980s, went and retired as a full-time entrepreneur, full-time musician in 92, in 1992. So this is, uh, man, I was one years old. Right? <laughs> I, I, this is how much I want to big this up, right? Like you are the OG of entrepreneurs. So, and the OG of musical entrepreneurs, I'm going to send this to all of my friends that are rap artists and tell them hey you want to listen to this story so without further ado ladies and gentlemen we have mr david combs how you doing sir
1: i am doing great ambition what a great introduction and you know we've only met each other for the past 10 minutes or so but already we <laughs> we're hitting it right off it's a this is going to be great it's going to be fun
0: man so right before we got started you uh introduced me to rachel's song uh which many people may have heard, even if they've never heard of you or, you know, really mm-hmm. paid attention to the fact that it's that song. Right. Um, simply because it's what you would call uh, easy listening music or easygoing music, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so you mentioned beforehand that your music was pianos and strings. So how would you describe your music for the people? Because we don't want them to think of it as elevator music, because ladies and gentlemen, what I just listened to was not elevator music at all.
1: Well, the most frequent word that I get back from people that hear my music and go to the trouble to write me a note or a letter. And by the way, I've had over 50,000 people over the last 40 years wow, write wow. me notes and letters. And I've got my basement down here a table if I wish you could see it. Boxes and boxes of wonderful letters. Now, these are not just notes that just you wouldn't want to read. You, you pick them up if I want to be inspired and pumped up. I just go pull out a box of letters and start reading. I mean, they are fantastic. But the music, it's instrumental, but it they describe it as music that speaks to your soul. It speaks to your inner being. When you listen to the music, it's not ele- elevator music, I think. It's just music you ignore, music you don't even pay attention to. My music is mi- music that I think when you hear it, you will pay attention to it, and it will grab your attention. If you close your eyes and let it really soak into you, it can do some magical things in terms of calming you down if you're stressed out. If you're, it'll give you some, the most frequent word described is peace. It will give you peace mm. and peace and calm. And you know, there are medical studies that say that instrumental music of some, of, like mine, really can lower your blood pressure, lower your, your uh, heart rate and lower your stress levels. It, it can really have a a really physic physiological healing effect. Mm. But, but more than that, it has a mental calming. You know how our minds get so, you know, frenetic is the way I like to describe it. There's so much going on in the world. If you turn on the TV and watch the news, it's all about, you know, the war in Ukraine and the inflation and the logistics problem. You know, there's just more problems than you can describe in, in a half an hour. And so it's no wonder that people are stressed out. Right. So if you turn off the TV, turn off all this noise, put your headset in where you can block out the rest of the noise. And I listen to the music of Rachel's song and some of, and my other music as well. I guarantee you, you're going to enjoy the experience. You're going to have a pleasurable, peaceful experience. And I'm not just trying to sell you my music. No. I, but I'm telling you that I've heard from over 50,000 people that I didn't know They didn't know me, but they wrote me. They went to the trouble of writing me a letter. Now, how many times have you, Ambition, written a letter to some musician that you didn't know, but you liked their song? And it takes a lot of effort to find the address, to write the letter and put it in the mail. I'm in the
0: hip hop generation, sir, we don't write letters. We (laughs) will tweet them and then get ignored. That's what we do, (laughs) right? Right. We show up outside of concerts. Hey, 50 remember me i was like...
1: <laughs> so but
0: the fact yeah. that 50,000 people have written you a letter right that means you know 50,000 letters means at least 50,000 purchases and let let's just put a a ballpark figure I, and i would assume much more than that because mm-hmm. people have to assume if people are buying the the CDs if they're buying the song and they're listening to the song there's going to be I would say, let's say ten percent that give you the letter. Right, that's what I was thinking. I was thinking right, ten right.
1: times that would be the real number of people that right, actually right. heard it.
0: That, yeah, that, that's exactly where I'm at. So, it we let's ballpark it because we don't want to be rude. We don't want to step too deep <laughs> into your pocket, sir. Let's <laughs> say you only charge ninety nine cents per CD, which. I'm listening to the music. There's no way you let somebody walked out with uh, just 99 cents per CD. And if that's the case or over the years, that would mean you have made over, over $500,000 with your music. Over oh, yeah. Right. Yep. And um, keep in mind, people, we, we are definitely being modest, right? Yeah, what, what, right. what I, what I want to ask you, sir, because if we are being modest, we, we kind of have an understanding. How long have you been uh, playing music or involved with music that throughout your life you've been able to turn something that is very difficult for people to actually succeed in, uh, how have you been able to turn that into your million-dollar opportunity, right? We did the ballpark math, people. If you listen, it definitely makes sense when you say it.
1: Well, you know, it's a long journey, and that's why I wrote my book, for one thing. If you mm-hmm. see up here over my shoulder, that's my book. But the stories of what, I, what led up to Rachel's song, uh, I didn't give my whole biography in there, but I ta- right. tell a little bit about my childhood and, and growing up in a musical family and that kind of thing. But the story of from that one song, the very first song I ever wrote at age 33, was Rachel's song. Wow. And following that is the journey from 1981 when I wrote it to now. Well, that's been 40, what, 41 years? Right. So that's a, that's four decades of experience with music from one song to 15 albums, from selling it in one gift shop to selling it in over a thousand gift shops across the country. Mm-hmm. And from getting it played on one radio station to getting it played on 400 radio stations around the country. And now in the digital world, my music is streamed millions of times, it, almost every month, because it's it's uh, on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Apple Music, Amazon Music. You know all the all those platforms. Right. It's available, but it's streamed. You know, downloads used to be a big deal when when Apple iTunes first came out around it was not t- two thousand one, I believe it was about the time. Mm-hmm. And you know, ninety nine cent a song, or, or I think it was like. Fourteen ninety nine for an album or something like that, right? But downloads now are kind of a little small piece of the pie. Most of the listening is done by streaming, right? And you know how much money I make per stream. <laughs> You're going to laugh at this, uh, uh, or, it, I'm, I, or I, I, I know, may cry. I've done, cry. done, it's, I've done it's,
0: the math. You you need about a hundred thousand streams to to at least make a dollar. On it's a
1: uh, point two pennies for me I, and I, I get reports every month of how much i get from spotify and all these places point two pennies i have to they have to stream it five times to get one penny wow so now you you do the math on that how, mo- how long would it take you to make let's say fifty thousand dollars how many streams would it take you to do for fifty thousand dollars at uh, five for a penny oh That's man a, I mean, it's a big number just yeah, you know yeah. it's so it is hard and that's why the music the musicians of the world no matter what genre you're in whether it's hip-hop or or uh, instrumental or classical or you know jazz any of those uh, genres they're still under the same kind of limitations of they're only getting 0.2 cents per stream of the music wow and, and so that it's been kind of a tug of war as it always has been between the musicians and the big companies, the distributors, and the big music businesses.
0: Wow, yeah, I think you've introduced a really interesting conversation that I know a lot of my contemporaries would be interested in, right? Um, you know, obviously, if you wrote your first song at 33, you had been playing all of the years before that, right? So we're talking 33 years of mastery, and for somebody to tell you that all of that years of mastery that you may have put into one song is Worth this much, right? There, there's this. It starts to become a uh, what seems like a pull, yes. Like a demand on the artist to mass produce content. Mm-hmm. However, your content can only be, you know, distributed to the masses if it's mass produced and quality.
1: Right. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay? Um. Mm-hmm. So, as a musician, how do you meet that challenge of, you know, you've produced over 170 songs. How does you said 15 albums. How do you meet that demand for constant production of content as well as quality of content?
1: Well, for the, I'd say from 1986, when I first recorded Rachel's song, the very first song, till I think I produced my last album recording in 2001. So that's what, 14, 15, 15 years something like that. Well, I have 15 albums. So it's about one album per year. And I I only did one album per year because it takes a I wanted to make sure that the 14, 15, 16 songs that went on an album were good songs. You know, sometimes you go in the studio with 17 or 18. And, you know, after you record it, well, that song just didn't really cut the mustard. So that one kind of it goes on the cutting room floor, as they say, that didn't make it. But you end up with. 14 or 15, and people ask me, well, which what's your favorite song on uh, your Discover Tranquility album? Well, I went to a lot of trouble to make sure that not only was the first track on there really good, the 15th track was also really good. Mm. So, uh, you know, you're probably like me. When I would hear a song on the radio I really loved, I'd go buy the album that that song was on. And I really only bought it just for that one song because I wanted to hear that song, right? Right. And most of the time, the rest of the songs on the album, the, B, the on the on a forty old forty five record, they had a B side. Everybody was an A side and a B. Well, the B song on the other side was uh, not always a really great song. Hey, hey, hey there you go, a vinyl record. Yeah, hey, folks, is, pay is attention. A, so. That's what it used to look like, and and now it's coming back.
0: That that is true. I actually uh, went in Best Buy and saw they had a. Bluetooth vinyl player, and I'm like, W-w-w-w-w. Whoa, and <laughs> yeah.
1: <Isn't> that's something <laughs> I still have my techtronics turntable over here, although it doesn't work anymore. The the, the head part of it broke off, but uh, man, that that turn that techtronics uh turntable was uh, or I think it was, I mean, actually it was dual, dual was the brand, but anyway, the turntable was an important piece of your music, mm. and uh, so anyway, where was I here, but uh, anyway, I made 15 albums and if you ask me which one of those songs is a, better than the other i think i have done a pretty good job of you each each person's going to have a their own favorite one on that album they're all i think i tried really hard to make them all sound good so i've got over 120 songs recorded and that i'm not ashamed of any of them all of them would i'll stand them up to any of the others except rachel's song is always so special because it was the first
0: I, I got to be honest with you, sir. For Most people do not like their early work. <laughs> most people like I, I write speeches, right? Like I, I've gotten to the point where I will make a speech in my head before I have to talk. Like I've done okay. that several times. Right. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm not going to do that at your event. If you pay me, I will need to say that disclaimer, <laughs> disclaimer. Um, but I've done that several times. Right. And, I've gotten so good at breaking down a speech structure and just cutting and sliding things into place that that works. But I, if I go back and listen to my early talks,
1: I shut it off.
0: (laughs) I shut it off. I'm like, I don't want to hear this guy talk. So, (laughs) So even that to me speaks to the level of mastery that you attained. It seems like you were a true student of the music, right? Like, um, What I would compare it to is uh, I play this instrument called West uh, Djembe, right? So it's a West African drum. It's played with your hands. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. The beginners will play one beat for an entire year. And it's very simple. It's literally one, two, three, one, two, three, right? That's it for the entire year. So it seems like you really had... A, a rigorous type of training when it comes to learning uh, your craft. Is, is that the case?
1: Not really. <laughs> this is going to be sound strange, but oh, I grew awesome. up in a, I grew up around music that was created by my father, by my grandmother Combs and by the way, this is my grandmother Combs's instrument that I like to talk about. You, have you ever mm. seen one of these? It's called an auto harp. Mm. It is a stringed instrument that basically you, you push down on this and And you can push down another one, it's... So it has the one chord, five chord, four chord, and a one seventh, and then a a six chord, yeah, it's a B-flat chord on here. But anyway, that was my grandmother's instrument. And she gave it to me on her passing. There's a note over here in the case that that said, this harp is for David Combs, my grandson. And she signed it, Granny Estelle Combs, that was her name. Man. And so I got this when she passed away, but I can remember hearing her play that auto harp and she would love to sing and play from that, it's just beautiful. She was only wow. you know, four foot eight tall. She was born in 1894 and just a sweet little lady. And I, I cherished those years that I would go up and see Granny Combs and spend time with her and we'd make music. She had an old pump organ in the house. I don't know if you've ever mm. seen one of those. You, you pump your feet on there to get the air going through the organ.
0: Right, with like they used to have the uh, the big ones with the uh, gold. Yeah, the go- the right the gold uh, yeah. uh, tubes.
1: Yep, yep. So anyway, this one's a, just a it has little reeds in it in the the organ, but you pump it with your feet. Mm-hmm. And she would play that and sing hymns at her in her little country church all the time. So I grew up up around people that didn't necessarily weren't musically classically trained. They learned it. They learned it from other people. It was a hand-me-down kind of a, a skill. Got gotcha. you. Well, my my father played by ear, and so I yeah I took piano lessons when I was eight years old or so, and I, so I learned how to read notes, and I can could read music. Mm-hmm. But he loved my father loved to play by ear. He just sit down at the piano. He didn't need music. He just sit there and play, and yeah. you know just like his mother, and so that kind of I may have rubbed off on me as well. Because I, you know, I like to. I learned how to play at least chords on a guitar. So you, you know, you at least learn C, F, and G, and all the the A minor, E minor, all those chords on the guitar. Right. And I taught myself a lot about how chords are structured. You know, you get into music. I wasn't a music major, so I didn't take a lot of music. I didn't take any music theory courses, but I taught myself. I bought a book on music theory and, and really studied that thing. And and it talked about. Harmony, how that works and how the scales work and the different kinds of scales and chord structure. And so I I taught myself a lot of the basics, the foundation of music. And I think if you'd talk to any of these jazz musicians, any of the creative musicians that go, just go in the studio and and they, you just hum a little bit of the song and they just tear loose on it. It's right. it, it's that foundation that they bring with them to the studio. Man, they they practiced that run that they just did a thousand times, but they just applied it to this one particular song. So their creativity juices kick in, and I think those years of being exposed to my father's music, my grandmother, and in church, I love the music we had. I'm a Baptist, so we had Baptist music, and you know, the, we had an organ and a Hammond organ and a a piano. So we always had piano organ duets and choir music. I I sang in the choir as soon as my voice changed and started so I could at least talk like this instead of like that. (laughs) My voice changed. But uh, so I was around music all the time. Mm -hmm. And by the time I was 33, when I wrote Rachel's song, I was comfortable sitting down at the piano and making something up or just doodling. I call it doodling, you, know, you just play chords and just mess around on the piano. And I had a pretty good ear for, I would turn on the easy listening radio station. If it was a song that I knew, I'd figure out what key it's in. I'd play along with it, at least play the chords because I knew the song and the chord progression and that kind of thing. So that's how I relaxed when I came home from work from Western Electric, was to sit out at the piano and play something. Wow. And this one time I came home from work, this was in January of 1981. I sat down at my piano that evening and I started to play. And I played a song. Now, when you're playing a familiar song, any instrument, you hear in your head what's coming up. I mean, you know what's where you're headed with the song, what chords are coming up, what notes. And when I was playing this song. I, I, it was as if I could hear the, the notes. I knew what notes were supposed to come next, but yet it was not a song that I had ever heard before. Now, I know this is hard to explain. Maybe it's hard to understand, but I think the song was a gift to me. It was inspired. It was an inspiration that I just was the lucky one that sat down at the keyboard and got to play it for the first time.
0: That does not sound strange at all. That That's exactly how I believe that ideas work yeah yeah you, you when we have ideas i don't think we own them i think you know we're charged to bring them into existence and if you didn't it would have been gifted to someone else because it's what the world needed mm-hmm. that, that yeah yeah,
1: yeah. so I, I sat there and i played and i played the song all the way through with it has a when you hear it it has a verse in the key of c and then it goes to like a chorus that is an f and it has a you know goes to f and then f minor and then Back, I think G, and then back to C, and that's the structure of the song. It's a, it has a verse and chorus structure to it. And I played the whole song. It's never changed. Not it has never changed from that first time I played it in terms of the melody itself and the chords. And so my wife came home from work a couple of days later, and she says, "Dave, what is this song that I've been humming in my head all day long?" He said, "You know how you get an earworm song in your ear? You just you can't get it out all day long. You're humming it." And so she says. She said, "Here, she hummed a little bit of it." She said, "What's the name of it?" And I said, "Well, Linda, it it doesn't have a name. It's just something I made up." And she says, "What? You made that up?" She thought I was playing somebody else's song. And I said, "No, I I just made it up." She said, "Well, have you written it down?" I said, "No, I've got it up here, and I I won't forget it." She said, "Nope, you've got to write it down because something might happen to you, and that song would be gone." Except the truck might run over you, I don't know. So I said, Wait, okay. Yes. This is your wife, by the way. That's right, this is my wife, Linda. So your wife um,
0: hears the song and she's immediately goes into protect the song. We can do without you.
1: <laughs> Forget <laughs> Dave, we're gonna keep this song. <laughs> right. So I said, yes, ma'am, I'll write it down. So I did write it down, the, the melody and the chords on, a, on some manuscript paper and I put it in my piano bench. I'd play the song, you know, periodically and we tried to come up with a name for it Mm -hmm. nothing ever fit you know naming a song is hard sometimes at least it may be like we we don't have any children but i can imagine it's the same agony you go through well what are we going to name this kid (laughs) unless you pick a family name or something so anyway so about two years later some friends of ours had a little baby girl her name was rachel and they asked me and linda to be her godparents so course we did accepted and we went to her christening service and it was just the family and us and we're sitting there in the church and up at the front of the church on the platform is a baby grand piano and now we're sitting there listening to the this service of wonderful words by the minister about the blessing the little girl and all that stuff and at the end of that part of the service i punched linda and i said hey what about playing this little song now that we've been trying to figure out what to do with Wow. And she said, "Wow, that's a good idea." So I got the inspiration to do that. And I went up and asked the family if it'd be okay. Oh, sure, that'd be fine. Everybody sat back down. I went over to the piano and sat down to play. And I played this song. And I got about halfway, three fourths through it. And I hear the sniffles in the crowd. And I, and actually, I was getting a few little tears coming down my cheeks. Uh, it was a you know, christening services can be very touching anyway. And then you sprinkle on top of that a song that's very emotional and and appropriate. It really pulls this, pulls your heartstrings. So at the end of the song, I looked over to little Rachel in the arms of her mother and I said, well, from now on, this song will be called Rachel's song in her honor.
0: Wow. Wow. Why I love that is it, it brings to mind something that I've been talking to my audience about. Right. And there's this idea of value and utility right? And little Rachel was just born. And Mm -hmm. what you giving you gifting her that song and saying, this is your song, right? Is similar to my theory on diamonds, right? And or my theory on value, right? So I use diamonds, right? A diamond in the ground is just as valuable as a diamond will ever be. Right? But it's not useful. And that's what value is. And that's also what self esteem is. So I really hope that Rachel plays that song and listens to that song even to this day. Right.
1: Because well, I'm, I'm sure she does. And then for obvious reasons, I protect her identity. I don't tell people who her last name or where she lives or anything, but I can tell you she loves that song. And when she was a little girl, she would when they her mom and dad would play it for her, she would say, my song, my song. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, it's a beautiful thing. Right. Because. We we do need to realize our internal value before we go out into the world and, and do some good. And man, you, you may have made sure that Rachel is forever a sweet, pleasant individual in everyone's lives, right? And for those of us who listen to the song, she had a, uh, a two-year intro, right?
1: That's right. <laughs> That's correct. Yep.
0: That's amazing. Okay, so that was when you were 33 and all of these years later, 170 songs, right? How do you stay inspired?
1: Well, I am inspired by the feedback that I get from folks that hear my music. And I still get feedback. And I and I encourage your audience, you know, when they go to my website down at the bottom, there's a link to, you know, send me an email. I, I love to get emails from folks and they can contact me. And after they've listened to, to the song, if they have a particularly moving story, how it touched them, there's a link up there in the top of my webpage that says Connect, and you can go there and send me your story. I'd, I'd love to read your story about how the music touched you. But I, you know, all these letters, and I still get them. It still has the same effect today, 40 years after it was written. And so I, I, that song will be around long after I'm gone. And I hope that it will be touching lives for centuries to come. But uh, that's my objective anyway.
0: I, I think it definitely will. I think it, you, you've you already had it for decades, right? If the mm-hmm. song was written uh, late 1980s, right? It's it's coming up. It's it's growing up. So I think we'll be listening to it for a while. And I'm pretty sure Rachel will pass, pass it down to <laughs> her children and so on and so forth. Yeah. Um, my question is, we talked about something uh, earlier where you had your own proprietary method for how you actually sold your music
1: mm-hmm. right
0: and you you said something that really keyed me and you said that you created your own market yes so let's talk a little bit about that how did you go about creating your own market to make sure that your content was ingested and distributed properly
1: okay I will be happy to do that because it's a it's an interesting story, and especially for your entrepreneurial-oriented audience that wants to know how to, how to do things.
0: Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So
1: I, yeah. I started out thinking that I could sell my music the traditional way in books in music stores. That did not work. They didn't ha- want to have anything to do with me or my music. They never heard of me. I wasn't a big name, and so I got nowhere. And I was really frustrated with, how am I going to get my music exposed to people i knew that when they heard it they wanted it i got that feedback from the radio airplay people would write to me and say you know here's you know how much do I, you charge for a cassette tape or a cd here's my ten dollar bill or <laughs> sometimes they would put a, a real actual money in an envelope but so i knew there was a demand for it and the key to me linda and i sat down you know as, as all entrepreneurs do when you're first trying to figure out your marketing plan right. what are the keys to making your product available and exposed to your potential customers, where can you go? You know, if you're into you know, hardware kind of things, of course you're going to try to get it placed in Ace Hardware and Lowe's and Home Depot, all those places if it's a hardware related item. Mm-hmm. If if it's, but in my case it was music, and Linda and I sat and we said, you know, the key to this music is it has to be heard. People, you cannot—they're not going to look at the album on a shelf and buy it. Right. They're going to want to hear it and then go find it and, and purchase it. So how do we get our my music heard? And we struggled with that and couldn't really come up with a good idea. And fortunately, a lady that worked with me at AT&T in my, the office right next to mine, she had a friend who owned a gift shop in Old Town, Alexandria, which is for those of you that have visited Washington, D.C., Alexandria area, you know, Old Town is a really great tourist place, it's got Great restaurants and great gift shops and you can know, okay. walk on along the river to Potomac. It's just a great place.
0: So you made sure you had foot traffic. Got you.
1: Yep. Yep. So this uh, well, I, this I wasn't even thinking about this time. This my the lady that worked right with me, she said, can I give one of your CDs to the lady who owns this gift shop called America mm. and America was a gift shop that was Jane. She the owner sold a patriotic things, Ray, anything red, white and blue. She sold it in that store. And she played patriotic music and, you know, like John Phillips, Sousa, all the, the patriotic kind of things. Well, she gave Jane a CD of Rachel's song. And about two or three days later, I get a phone call at work and it's Jane, the owner of the shop. I, I've, I've never met her. And she introduced herself and says, Dave, I got a problem. She said, every time your CD comes on my CD changer and starts playing, all the customers in my shop come over to the counter and say what is that music that's playing do you have it for sale I want to take it home with me wow and I she said I don't have I don't all I have is that one CD that uh, your your co-worker gave to me and she said let's let's work out a deal where you can sell me some at wholesale and then I'll carry your play and sell your music in my shop all okay right,
0: well, so we got some some yeah. product and some distribution
1: yeah and so she I said well we'll work out a wholesale price and she, can you bring them to me tonight i said yeah I, yeah we can so that night linda and i boxed up a box of tapes and cds and we traipsed down to old town alexandria it was about you know we were in, living in maryland not too far away right so i took her a box of cds and tapes i thought okay and i, I loved her shop it was upstairs on king street uh, above a pizza place and it was a, not a big place but it was it looked good and sounded good when you went in she had a great sound system and so i left them her her music. A couple of days later, Jane calls me back. She said, Dave, I got a problem. <clears throat> Those are all gone. <laughs> you got to bring me some more. And how about doubling the order this time? So instead of 12, how about bringing me a do- two dozen of everything? Okay. So that night, here we go back down to Old Town, Alexandria, bringing her more music. You know, Linda and I made that trip to Old Town, Alexandria every week for over a year. Jane sold thousands of that one album, out of that one little gift shop, tapes and CDs. I mean, thousands of them. And so I'm, a, you know, I have my MBA from Wake Forest University, so I'm a business person. I'm a computer person too, so I've made me a spreadsheet. I said, okay, column one of my spreadsheet, I'm gonna model what Jane's shop has done. Put up there how many tapes she sold, how many CDs she sold. Here's how much she paid me for each of the tapes and CDs, and here how much it cost me for each tape and each CD. You do the arithmetic and come down at the bottom to a gross profit right. so i looked at that and i thought whoa you know this is a pretty good definitely profitable and the, you know with the numbers she was selling it was a pretty good sized number wow. so i being a, a business person i said oh, an entrepreneur i said okay what if i had one gift shop like hers in every state let's just let's not get greedy let's just say i got 50. All right, column two of my spreadsheets is column one times fifty. And then okay, whoa, that's the number's pretty good. Oh, that's really looking good. So I said, okay, let's not really, let's not go overboard, but let's say I had five in every state. 250 gift shops, that's all. Right. Third right. column. Added add it all up and I said, Linda, come here, you gotta see this. Look at this number. It's twice what I make it work. <laughs> Then when the light bulb goes off in my head that says, we have found the business model that I need to replicate. Man. Got it. And, you know, it, it, it's just the numbers speak for themselves. And the secret is you find, and this, true, this is true for any business you're going to create as an entrepreneur. You build you a model that works and that not you think works, that not that you hope works, that you prove that this works on a small scale. Now, before you go betting the farm and doing all this borrowing, putting the house, you know, mortgaging the house and all this stuff, you make sure that you have a model that works. And then when you do, you work your tail off to replicate it. And that's what I did. I -hmm. went from one gift shop to over, a not 250. I didn't stop at 250. I had over a thousand gift shops, eventually playing and selling my music all over the United States.
0: Wow. that That is amazing, right? So not only did you, you said 250 was double.
1: Yeah. I was, yeah.
0: <laughs> you went straight for the moon. You said, listen, <laughs> modesty be damned. <laughs> I love it. No, and what, what's so amazing about this story is, you know, you you brought together so many pieces, right? There's so many people that I meet um, you know, within the social media generation, everybody's listening to somebody that has a piece of the puzzle, but what you did was you really put it together. If you're a creative, get busy creating, right.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Until you make something that people love, then get busy sharing. It is what I heard you say. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And then once you've shared it and it starts to make you even just a little, little bit analyze and see if that's profitable.
1: mm-hmm
0: and then run with that. Man, it's a simple model. It really I'm, I'm really going to break this down and send it to all of my creatives, <laughs> all of my people on SoundCloud uh, and elsewhere, because it, it's really similar to, you know, some of the stories that we hear even within modern day. Right. So um, Nipsey Hussle, you know, rest in peace. He passed away in 2018 uh, was a rapper that did something very similar. He sold his CDs on a street corner for a thousand dollars, thousand dollars a piece. Um, yeah. (laughs) And, um, had a Jay-Z come up to him and order multiple, I believe it was a hundred. Somebody could, if you're listening, you can correct me on the, the, the number, but bought a hundred CDs and that guy is now the guy that we talk about. So, what you're doing really works and what you did works. Um, how has your business model evolved? So now you're doing streaming. Obviously mm-hmm. we have the book, right? Um, you no, know, and, and obviously you're, you're doing your runs as a, uh, on the pod, as a podcast guest, but how has the business model for you changed?
1: It has really morphed from a totally physical product in cassette tapes and CDs in the eighties mm-hmm. in the mid nineties, the CDs, or cassette tapes really declined. I think I sold my last cassette tape, but it was 1998 or nine. That was, it went to zero, literally. And CDs, I think the CDs really peaked for me around 95, 96 time frame, wow. And thereafter they started declining. And then of course, Napster came along toward the end of the nineties and stole all our music and uh, and kind of killed. You
0: stealing your music. <laughs>
1: Everybody, not just mine, it was everybody's music got stolen by Napster. What, you know, and the teenagers and the, the young folks, why would I pay $15 for an album, uh, a CD, fun. when I can go to Napster and download it for free? So the value and the perceived value of music was really hurt by that. And, and I know that the, law, the, the, the court system shut them down eventually. But by the time they shut Napster down on their free free downloads of copyrighted music, the we damage had been done.
0: I remember Napster. I'm not going yeah. to you. We oh <laughs> had yeah. A great time with that.
1: <laughs> yeah. So you know that, but that really hurt the the people who were trying to make a living selling music. You know, giving away things for free is not a good business model. I can tell you, <laughs> you're not going to make a lot of money giving things away. But uh, anyway, so that essentially really killed the music business toward the end of the 1990s. Now, I was fortunate that I had a, a mailing list, email list, and a physical mailing list by the end to be able to keep up with those people who had ever bought my music. So I had I kept all that in a database. And I think my last physical mailing of a, in the U.S. mail of a new album I came out with uh, was to 27,000 people. Wow. And I, on that, and by the time I did that, the postage rates were way up. It was expensive to mail it. Of course, you had to print all the material and all the expense of mailing was made it such that by the time I got my expenses and what I sold, it was essentially about a break even. So the wow. physical mailing and sales, that model no longer worked in terms of a, a profit for me. Cause I, and I wasn't in it just for the fun of it either. I did want to make a, a living at it. I had, you know, a house payment to make and make a living. Right. But but that was my last, you know, I kinda once once it went to the negative on the, the net profit, I said, Well I, I can't really afford to do this anymore. But mm-hmm. fortunately, that's about the time the digital world kicked in and Apple music came along, I guess was in that thousand one, and iTunes not Apple Music, iTunes came along and they started downloads at 99 cents a song. And then shortly thereafter, I, I'm not sure what year, it was 2005 or six. Pandora came around and started the streaming of music. And so as soon as those came around, I, I uploaded as many of my songs as I could onto those platforms immediately.
0: So I want to thank you for bringing this up because what you kind of pointed out to me is something that most consumers don't really pay attention to. right? Um, my belief is that in business, you're you you have to solve problems. You have to be able to solve really huge problems. And one of the things that I never, you know, that I really took for granted is that Apple, Pandora, and all of those companies, they didn't just solve a problem for me, the listener, right? Where I can just go on my phone and listen. They solved the problem for you as well, where now all of these artists want to give them their music because they're mm-hmm. ensuring that they're getting paid. So that's that that's really amazing when you think about it, because think about the amount of allies that those companies made by being able to solve people's powerful people's problems.
1: Mm-hmm. Right?
0: That, that's exactly how I want to break it down, right? Because you've already attracted an email list of 27,000 people right? This is a product that you know 27,000 people uh, want. Apple has a great incentive to put Rachel's song on their uh, platform. Mm-hmm. They have an amazing incentive. So wow, man, I, I, I love all of the information and in the the entrepreneur history that you're breaking down because people watch social me, uh, the uh, social network movie and they'll get introduced to um, the character that, started napster and they won't know all of this history and this is the mm-hmm. real stuff right yeah so, man amazing amazing so after pandora comes along after it, now you're here right now now we're in the streaming uh generation and not the download generation how has the industry changed from downloads to streaming
1: well, it has dramatically changed in terms of the balance. I mean, downloads are maybe, I don't know, maybe 10% of the, uh, the, the business and n- the other 90% is streaming at this point. It's, I keep up with data that I get every month from Spotify and, you know, all the, the places that stream. I do get the statistics of how many and which song is, is, is streamed and where it's, it's streamed. And before I forget it, guess where my, my music is streamed most and quite often the number one country in the world. Is You're it, not.
0: I I think you you mentioned Australia for Rachel's song. It was the number one song for two years in a row. That's not, not it though. Australia.
1: No, it's not Australia. Australia, they do listen to it. It is Brazil. Re- Get out, Brazil. Now, now, I, now ambition. I do not know why. Except that I know on my Spotify report of where it comes from, the number one city in the world that downloads my music is Sao Paulo.
0: I'm not going to lie to you, man. I instantly got a uh, image of a uh, plastic surgeon office uh, doing Brazilian butt lifts.
1: <laughs> 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 oh, surely to goodness, I don't, my, <laughs> my music is not <laughs> tied with that. I don't, <clears throat> that's a,
0: they, they I need don't have trouble to getting that out in. of my head. Hmm? They, they need, a, they need to have a steady hand. They're doing God's work, too.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to have trouble getting that image out of my head. Uh, <laughs> oh, man. Okay. But, so, yeah, they... so Spotify tells me where, and so Sao Paulo, Brazil, all of Brazil, and then the United States, of course, is next. But then, you know, I've got Japan and Europe, all, Germany, England, have all you, these places. um
0: Have you ever reached out uh, down there to see if, you know, who who are your listeners? Is there any way for you to figure out who are you I hadn't
1: figured out how to do that. I really haven't figured out. I'd love to know that because I haven't.
0: A... You know what I would do? Um, I mean, yeah, it would be difficult, but if you could run an ad down there, like a little fifty dollar social media ad, right? Target mm-hmm. Brazil specifically and have the music play, you'll be able to maybe get yeah. some clickbacks. Maybe you'll be yeah. able to see. What type of people and what who's really listening to the music?
1: Yeah, because it's you know it's easy to translate today. I can have Google translated into Portuguese. That is not a problem. Uh, probably most of them may uh, speak English as well as Portuguese anyway. But uh, yeah, that's that's worth the. Uh, I'd I'd sure love to know because it sounds like you know it's for some reason it's very popular and and even my mentor John W. Peterson, who was a, a wonderful. Christian composer back in the day. He had all these wonderful cantatas that he wrote, by, and, and my choirs that I conducted when I was in college played, we, we, we sang his cantatas. And I got to meet John W. Peterson before he passed away. He lived in Scottsdale, Arizona. I visited him in his home, and he told me that his music had made a huge revival in South America. That he was, it was almost like he was a rock star when he would go into Brazil or a South American country, whereas his music in this country had kind of waned, and so I, it, there's maybe there's something going on down there that I don't know about, but they they apparently love my mu my kind of music, and really, John W. Peterson was one of my mentors and musically. He didn't know it at the time, but his music meant so much to me that I I feel like that. If you listen to my music, you can probably hear some influence in there from John W. Peterson. Wow! And so maybe there's some connection there that uh, I don't know. <laughs> the, I I think
0: it's really interesting as well. You know, you it's when you listen to people talk about music trends, they often talk about music being the uh, the industry for the young in our country, in the United States, right? They mm-hmm. talk about you know if you're still making music got to let it go especially with hip-hop artists right like they only make music for younger people so i wonder if it's just kind of the business push within america mm-hmm. that causes us to listen to a certain music but who knows know. maybe it's uh maybe it's tourism down in brazil as well and
1: it could be i don't know anyway that's just always fascinated me when i get my spotify report i always See what, who's the winner this month, <laughs> and it's just interesting,
0: man. And you got to forgive me, man, when you tell me large numbers and things like that. I'm a uh, cybersecurity analyst by trade, so you know that was my day job before getting into this full time. But th- that's basically what happens when you tell me big numbers. I go, "What? What does this mean?" Hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sit down and try mm-hmm. to figure it out.
1: <laughs> yes. Speaking of big numbers, and since uh, you're a numbers kind of, I can tell you're a numbers kind of person. Yes, sir. Guess how I found out where all the tourist towns in the United States are. Now, if I were to ask you, uh let's do tell me, give me a state that you've never been to. Have you ever
0: mm, Iowa? All
1: right. So could you tell me where the tourist towns in Iowa are? Probably not, because you've never been to the state, period, right? No. You wouldn't have a clue. I didn't have a clue either. Uh, but I did know that my Potential best customers were in tourist towns. That was it
0: be where the airports are.
1: No, now think about it. What are the two d- data characteristics of a tourist town? First of Here, all, there's how an many, attraction. How many gift yeah. shops? How many gift shops would be in a, in a, a tourist town? Oh, how many? A, a large number, right? A yeah, big there number. would be
0: plenty. You'd have What's, entire yeah. streets lined with them.
1: Yeah. And what's the permanent population of a tourist town? The resident permanent, you know, the-
0: It's usually small.
1: Okay. Now, what if you did the ratio of gift shops per population? Wouldn't that ratio tell you- (laughs) You're you're getting the picture. You got the picture. Yes, yes. So So now, now roll the clock back to that. There is no internet. There is no Google. I cannot go online. There is no online. This is back in 1988, 89 timeframe. You picked up phone books. Yes, I did. Oh my goodness, sir. And so I I started calling from phone books. But now this was before I even knew where the tourist towns were. But when it was not a tourist town, I would have to call 30 people, 30 gift shops to find even one that would agree for me to send them a free album for them to even consider playing. 29 nos to get one yes
0: so you now put at least 30,000
1: I called fish shops the, I called a ton. country
0: just to get a thousand
1: yes that would be true except I didn't really call I, I found a better way but before I got to the 30,000 trust me <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't working that way I was on on the weekends I was all day Saturday and all day Sunday from the day the sh- moment the shops opened till they closed I was on the phone calling them Mm-hmm. Now, I would go. I was, we lived in Maryland, so I could go to the Library of Congress where the, they had a room full of phone books, literally, room full of phone books. I could make Xerox copies of gift shop listings all day long. And except that wasn't working. And so I said, I have got to find out, because I did realize very quickly that the secret was to go calling a tourist town, not a commercial urban area of the town or whatever. I needed to know where the tourist towns are. And we'd get, we'd we'd exhausted all the ones we could drive to during the weekend. We'd go to places, you know, with Occoquan and uh, Ellicott City, other places around Washington, D.C. area and and visit those and and do prospecting. I call it shoe leather prospecting. You're walking down the sidewalk and you stick your head in the door. And if you hear music, you go on in and, and do some prospecting. So that was my, but I ran out of those real quick and had to do, resort to the telephone. So first I needed, I needed to know all of the gift shops in the country. So I bought the mailing list, which was a computer printout, big computer wide paper, about this thick, about four inches thick, single spaced, all the gift shops in the, from the Yellow Pages for every town in the United States, all 75,000 of them. So this big old printout, seventy-five thousand gift shops. So now I had at least a place that I could. I didn't have to go to the library and make copies of the yellow pages anymore. But then I needed to know how many gift shops were in that town. So I had I went. I went through the printout and I literally counted. You know, for Boeing Rock, North Carolina, one. It was forty-five gift shops. So I I made me a spreadsheet, state, city, number of gift shops. state and town none of these were cities they were all towns the number of gift shops and i went through that whole big printout and counted all those it took a long time manually counting them up put them in my spreadsheet then i said i need to know how many people live in that town not how many people visit but how many what's the population and i went to the library across the street and ambition you probably know if you want to know something go to a librarian they know everything. everything, and if they everything. and if they don't know, they know where to go get it. So I asked the I, the library was right across the street from where I worked. I went well, over there at lunch.
0: That is true, even in twenty twenty two for all of yeah. my listeners, right? I went to the librarian a couple weeks ago because I needed to get a location lockdown. They were like, "Yeah, we can do it here, or you can go over there." Listen, everything, librarians.
1: Yep, exactly. They are wonderful people. So anyway, I went to the library across the street. And I told her what I wanted. I said, where can I get all these population statistics? And she says, well, there is this book. And I, I just happened to have the book right beside me here because I wanted to show it to you.
0: This, uh,
1: this is the book. I got to get the front of it around here. Uh, I don't know whether you can see this or not, but let me back up where you can see the, the thing. This is, it weighs 12 pounds, by the way. I've weighed it. And it's about an inch and a half thick. And it has in it all of these wonderful maps of all the places in the country. But guess what? Back in the back here, oh, my word, there is a listing of every crossroad in the country and its population and then some other data. And this thing is called, the. this was 1990, Commercial Atlas Marketing Guide, put out by... Let's see. Who is it? Rand McNally or? Something? Yeah, it is up here at the top. Rand McNally. This book, I ended up buying a co- This is the copy I bought because the li- I didn't want to have to go to the library and <laughs> do all this writing down the numbers. So I bought one of these books. It was like, I don't know, it cost me $150 or something way back when. It's expensive. But boy, was it worth it because then I could take my spreadsheet. I could put in the population of all these little towns that I'd counted up the gift shops. And when I got done, okay, computer, next column, you calculate the ratio, population per gift shop, okay? Then, next thing, now, computer, you sort this by that ratio within the state. And guess what happened? Gatlinburg, Tennessee, boom, top of the list. Blowing Rock, North Carolina, boom, top of the list. Occoquan, Virginia, boom, top of the list.
0: No. For those of you listening, you're talking about
1: 1990.
0: Yep. Mm-hmm. Now, I was born in 91, right? And I'm not <laughs> saying that, you know, not saying I should know. But are you telling me that within the 90s, within the years that I remembered, I, I would never really think of Tennessee as a tourist town? So was there something? Is Is that even...
1: Every state has its tourist towns. I can promise you. Wow. Actually, okay. I created an old fashioned pushpin map. I bought a great big map of the United States and I bought these little pushpins. You can stick in the map and everywhere I would get a customer for to sell my music. I put a pushpin on there and those places were always near. <laughs> there was two other characteristics They were near water or the near were near mountains well guess where most tourist towns are located they're located near the mountains or near water usually wow most and so that was another geographic characteristic of a tourist town but i was able to calculate and today we call that using big data right analytics that's the big that's the big term now
0: yes it's one of my favorite subjects this is listen I, for everybody listening this has turned into a the i i didn't know i was going to be able to talk tech and entrepreneurship and create look listen you cannot put this man into one box <laughs> You cannot put this one man into one box he sells you music sure but the journey there man amazing
1: well that that i went from having to make one uh, 30 phone calls to get one my hit rate once I got that things and I started calling only the tourist towns one in five and sometimes one in four. I wouldn't. I had so many prospects at the end of the weekend that I would have my car jammed full of packages to put in the mail on Monday to wow. send out for those prospects, and that's how I got from one gift shop to over a thousand. Hmm. So. It was not like I said, it was not in a straight line and I had to learn something along the way. But once you once you learn something that works, man, you go like crazy and do it.
0: You know what I love about your story, right? And this is this is probably the most well-rounded story of entrepreneur success that I've ever heard. Right. And I, I say literally ever because it's standard the test of time. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and you've had to do almost everything that people try to segment us and say, well, if you're logical and you deal with numbers, you can't be creative. If you're creative, you can't figure out the number side of the house. (laughs) You need to hire somebody for the marketing, right? But you really sat down and you put in the work. And for all of my listeners, the, the message that I've gotten is that There's a lot of people in the world that are telling you, you can't do it your way. And you probably can do it your way. The truth of the matter is, though, are you willing to put in the amount of work that you're going to have to do to do it your way? And if you listen to everything that Mr. Combs just said, that David Combs just said, in terms of being a creative, having 30, 30 plus years of musical experience that you picked up passively, then utilizing your MBA to crunch the numbers to figure out whether or not uh, that was a viable option, right? You, you want to make sure that you can actually crunch the numbers on the business. Then you went forward into data analytics and really figuring out how to associate data. And these are all of the skills that you can't tell an entrepreneur Hey, you—you you can only focus on one of these things. <laughs> no, you have to do all of these things. You—that's what makes you CEO material. And sir, I, I gotta be honest with you. With everything I've just heard, you—you kind of sounded like. Um, not sure if you watch TV. Uh, HBO Max has a show called Silicon Valley, right? Um,
1: I've heard of. It. I have not watched the show, but yeah.
0: There's a character called Peter Gregory. He's a uh, venture capitalist, right? And the um, the correlations he makes, very similar thing. I think he, um, it, it's one of those things where you see traders also make those sort of cor- correlations. A lot of uh, day traders, because again, big data, big analytics. So my point in that, to for most people, is if you want to make a lot of money, you have to understand the numbers and what the numbers tell you about the people, mm-hmm. not just your bank account.
1: Yeah. That's right. I have a good friend here in Winston-Salem who is the CEO of a company that their their whole business is big data. It's a company you, a lot of people have heard of. It. It's called Inmar, I-N-M-A-R. Nice his name is D- David Mounts. He's the CEO and he's a friend of mine. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, he makes his that whole company exists to around big data. They they support big data for drug stores and grocery stores. You know, how what products do you do you uh, put on what shelf and what products are moving, what products are not. That's all captured today by these uh, loyalty cards. When you use your uh, yes. your, your card at the, at the grocery store, at the, at, the, at the service station, wherever you're shopping, that's data that's being captured about you. What do you buy? You buy something on Amazon? That's they know every <laughs> if you buy a lot of stuff on Amazon, they know a lot about you and can can characterize who you are and, and market straight to you and target you. And chances are you're going to buy some of that stuff. And that's how they make their living.
0: Well, because marketers nowadays are, are doing exactly what you did. Right. Um, you you if you're going to be successful as a marketer nowadays, you have to understand the psychology of the people that you're selling to. And I think you bring up a very good point. There's too many people who are trying to understand psychology from a logical standpoint. Uh, and when I say logical, I mean numbers, right? So they're trying to track the data. And then there are too many people who are trying to understand it from a emotional standpoint. Well, you know, this is how it feels. And I think you need both.
1: Yeah. Right. You need yeah, one, without, you. one without the other doesn't work.
0: Exactly. So with that, I definitely want to tell my my listeners to be balanced, but we're going to move into the final segment of our um, podcast before we get the uh, call to action from Dave. And this is called story for a story, right? Okay. So you share a story with me and I will share a story with you, right? And I'll try to keep it around the same level. Normally we go wild and crazy story, but whatever story you want to share, sir.
1: Well, let me tell you about the, the, my experiment with advertising on television. You remember, you, you've seen the HGTV channel. It's a home and garden television channel. It's a very popular channel now.
0: Yeah, if, was... if you've dated a woman in the past century, you've seen HGTV. <laughs> That's
1: right, that is true. Well, back when that channel very first started, this was in the early 90s. Mm. I had the vision that I would love to see my music played on a TV like the, the Time Life folks do around January time frame. You can't turn on the TV without Time Life having the ad where the songs are playing and the titles are scrolling down the screen, you know, and your artist comes on and talks about the music and you can buy this album now for I don't know how much money, whatever. And. It's an eight 800 number you call and, and buy the music. And I could just see my Rachel song and my other albums on the screen with this my beautiful photography and just the title scrolling down and the music soft, you know, playing in the background. And I could just see people just flocking to that and buying the, buying the heck out of the music. So. I've contacted HGTV, and no- they were headquarters was in Knoxville, Tennessee. It's about a five-hour drive from where I live right now. So I called them and and told, asked them if if they ever did anything like that. I said no, we've we're a new network. They weren't even in all the cable networks around the country. They were just growing, and but they did have millions of households that they were piped into, and and I said, well, would you entertain possibly doing an album? Uh, an ad for my music, like the Time Life kind of ads. Well, sure, I said okay. I, so I got in the car and I drove to Knoxville to meet these people. Went in their headquarters. It was brand new. They had a brand new digital editing suite. It was really impressive for the day and and great people. They were really friendly. They welcomed me and uh, actually they they liked the sound of my voice. They thought I should be doing some voiceover for them. I said, oh, I'm I'm not here for that. But anyhow. Um, I talked to the vice president of, of advertising and, uh, he told him what I wanted. We reached an agreement that he would do my ad and, you know, produce it for me and run the ad. I think I bought like 30 ads and it was $13,000 was the ad cost. And that was a lot of money to me, but I, I had, in, I had visions of this thing really taken off and it would be really successful. So they produced the ad. It was absolutely beautiful, and I told him, I said, "Now I have no idea whether this is going to go or not." And he said, "Well, I don't either." And I said, "Well, I sure hope I can at least break even on this. I'd like to at least get my thirteen thousand dollars back." And he said, "I'll tell you what I'll do," he says, "If you'll send me the data from all the sales. In other words, when they come in, what time of day, who it was, what their address, what all the the detailed data. If you'll give me that from all your sales." from the ads, I will run your ad until you're whole. Now, you'll never get that deal today, but on a handshake, this gentleman, I wish I could remember his name, he told me he would make me whole, he would run my ad until it—it it was I, I broke even. So the ad starts running on TV and I know when the ads are gonna run and I, I, and I had already lined up a, a big 800, uh, a call back a call center. i had contracted with a call center to answer this 800 special 800 number. I printed up thousands of order forms for them to fill out to take the orders. Took it to the call center, and the ad started running. And so after the first ad ran, hey, did you get any orders? Yeah, we got five. <laughs> I said, okay, well they run another ad. Hey, how'd you do? Well, we got we got seven this time. And so they they kept running the ad and yeah, I'd get, you know, five, sometimes 10 or maybe even more orders, but not not big numbers. So it kept running. Finally, my 30 ads are all run and I haven't gotten but a handful of actual orders from this. Right. So I sent the data to my friend at HGTV and he says, well, I've told you I'd do this. I said, I'll run your ad. In every open ad slot we have, you know, they and when they were, they were new, they hadn't sold all their ads. So at night, at, after midnight, a lot of ad slots were open. So they re- put my ad in all of those open <clears throat> slots. I was the king of late night advertising. You could not turn on HD TV after midnight and not see a Combs ad. Every unsold slot was one of my ads. You know how long he had to run my ad before I got whole. Hold oh. on, four years. Get out. Four years. Well, I have this. I have the data. I have this big spreadsheet uh, that I kept yeah, of all this.
0: But people got to understand that's not even. It, it's it's so great of a thing because brand brand awareness. That that was your brand awareness right then and there.
1: Yeah, but good. You know, thank God for His. Honesty and a handshake. This was not in writing. It was a handshake. He said, I'll do this. And he did. And so I, <laughs> it was just an absolute miracle. But I learned one thing about it that there is a difference in advertising and in marketing between reach, how many people that potentially, it's like, you know, when it rains, it reaches the whole country. Mm-hmm. And then how many people actually listened to it, how many people were out in the rain and really got wet. And then how many people did something about it? How many people put up an umbrella and kept themselves dry? Or in this case, how many people actually watched the ad and how many people acted on it and bought it? And in today's marketing terms on the internet, I said, what do you call it? There's a pay-per-click, and then there's the click-through rate, and then there's the conversion rate, which means yep. they yep. actually bought something. Yes, so sir, sir, sir. I think the, uh, the ratio, of, what is it? About one in 10 will make so it maybe click-through and then maybe one in 10 of those will actually buy. So you're talking about only one out of 100 actually takes action on an ad. So those are the num- That's I'm a numbers person, and so if you do the cost of the ad and how much your product sells for and how many exposures you're gonna have, you can run them with arithmetic and see, am I gonna make any money on this ad, likely or not? And if, it's not, if the answer's not good, don't buy the ad. It's, you're, you're, not gonna, you're gonna lose money. So anyhow, the secret is to find an ad like I did with the gift shop thing. If you can find an ad uh, or a way to expose your product that is cost effective, then you go like crazy. If I could find an ad where I paid $10 and I got $20 sales out of the deal, I'd go borrow money and buy okay. ads. <laughs>
0: yeah, I, I've had, um, you know, entrepreneur friends and business partners talk to me and they say, hey, man, I spend a thousand dollars to make three thousand. Right. And they mm-hmm. said, "I'll spend a thousand dollars to make three thousand every freaking every day,
1: every day, yeah, every day."
0: It so it, it it man, you you, this is genuine business goal, man. You you stepped on and given nothing <laughs> but value. Um, all right, so I'll give you a story, and to really drive home, because what I think we are hearing today is people, if you have a voice, if you have a mission, if you have a purpose, you have to be able to discern your voice from the other voices in your head telling you nonsense. Right. And the story that I'm going to give you guys to really drive that home was the night I wrecked my car. Right. So, and I actually didn't wreck it. My, my girlfriend was driving. She wrecked it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but is that your was, girl- girlfriend
1: or your former girlfriend?
0: no current girlfriend oh okay about okay. things about like cars <laughs> this is cool. okay. we made it out safe
1: okay all right <laughs>
0: if she wrecks this one though
1: <laughs> yeah
0: <laughs> <laughs> you, then you're a bad omen but um <laughs> it, this night i had gone out partying it was the uh one year anniversary since my best friend passed away and uh we gone out partying, you know, we're doing the thing. So I'm now tired, right? I'm tired. I'm drunk. I'm tired. It's late. She's driving, right? I'm still good enough to open up my eyes every now and again, but she's pushing through and we're coming back from LA and we got about an hour drive. Mm. So she's pushing through cause she just really wants to get to her bed. I'm like, Hey, pull over if you need to pull over. But then I just, I conk out myself, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: She falls asleep. And right down the road from my house, I mean, 500 yards from our from our house, car uh, wheel hits the curb, slides back out. She catches it. My head hits the freaking uh, front right quick. And then we skate and stop. So I try to open the door. And the door is kind of stiff, right? And so I got shoved the the door open. You can hear the metal creak so you can hear it. And as I get out of the car, I look, the entire wheel is off the axle. Whoa. Right? Just hanging. And the body of the the frame of the car, the entire body of the car is resting on top of the wheel that is now off of the axle. Right? (laughs) so we're down the street from the house uh we grab all our bags and stuff and you know i i didn't say anything i'm like oh shit we made it home mm.
1: <laughs> that was
0: the first thing i thought i said well we made it home right and we start walking up the street and i notice her demeanor she's disheveled right? really she she's down and i'm like all right, so, you know, I'm already making plans for how we're gonna handle this and moving on. And, and she, uh, she said something and I asked her a question. I said, did I say this was your fault? And she started trying to argue with me. I said, but did I say it was your fault? She said, no. I was like, so then why do you feel that way? She's said, I don't know. I said, so I asked her a question. I said, whose voice is it in your head that's making you think this is all your fault. Right. She said, my mom, and she, she went back to when she was a little girl and she used to get in trouble and she used to get talked to.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Right. So I say that to all of you, because look, things happen in life. It's not your fault. When I told her that I said, look, don't worry about it. It's a thousand dollar deductible. Right. My head is worth far more than a thousand dollars. I've packed far more than a thousand dollars worth of knowledge into this thing, right? So we're good. You're safe. Yeah. And we'll go get a rental tomorrow. We're we're in a good space. Right. A week later, yeah, exactly. About a week later, we went down to the dealership. We ended up getting a car that was big enough for the entire family. And we sat down and we had the discussion. And we ended up, this is how I got my truck, right? So we ended up getting a better car, bigger car, right? Yeah. And my whole thing was leather seats. <laughs> so I turned to her and I said, man, I really love these leather seats. This is a really awesome car. And it's all your fault.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right? oh, I hope she chuckled at that one. <laughs> yeah.
0: So for those of you listening, right? Whenever mm-hmm. something goes wrong, whenever something's just not going right, Just remember, whatever voice is telling you something negative, is that the voice that you need to hear? Is it even your voice? Because those those negative thoughts usually come into the tone of somebody else.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: So for those of you listening, I just want you to pay attention to that. And Mr. David Combs, if you can't take us away, how can we get in contact with you? How can we uh, get a hold of your music and Get your book, all of it. We want to hear all of it, man. What do you got for us?
1: Well, it's, I've made it very simple because I've thought about this a long time. I didn't want to make a whole bunch of go here for that, go for the, you know, don't go make it, make it real simple. All you got to do is remember my last name, Combs, C-O-M-B-S. Mm. Just go to combsmusic.com. And when you get to my website, on the left-hand side, you'll see the picture of my book. On the right-hand side, you'll see... Picture of my CD. And in the middle, or between the two, it'll it it'll say, play Rachel's song. I want you to play it right there. You don't even have to buy it. You don't have to do anything. You just click on it, and you listen to Rachel's song. If you can, put your headset on and listen to it really closely. But that's the best place to start. Now, on my, under my book, you'll see a link that says, go to buy it From Amazon.com." You click there. It'll take you right to the book page on Amazon, where you can get a paperback, an audible book, or a a, a Kindle book ebook, or I'll go under the CD over here, click on that it'll take you right to the Amazon page where you can either buy the CD you can download the CD or a song's in it or you can if you're an uh, Amazon's m- music member you can stream it and then so that's the two things that I would like for you to do is to, I, I would be honored if you would go to my book and and read my book whether it's paperback or whatever format you like to read. But I think you will be inspired by the stories because we've already talked about a lot of these stories that are in my book tonight or today. And, uh, and listen to my music. Again, that will I want it, it will touch your life like it has other people's as well. And if you're more curious about my other 14 albums besides that one, there are links at the top of my page that will take you to my other books and music. And if you play the piano, I have piano music books that go along with my albums as well. You can buy the books or you can download them from Sheet Music Plus right now. You four ninety nine $4.99 a song, pay the money and download a PDF, print it, and you're playing it right now. And the music that I have created, the sheet music, is note for note what's on the recording. I spent a lot of time and money making sure that every transcription was exactly what Gary played on the album and his arrangement. So, if you like, if you're a decent piano player and want to play it for your friends and whatever occasions you want, it's used in a lot of weddings, you can buy my music. So, but go to my, start with going to my website, and that'll get you to wherever you need to go. Just combsmusic.com, and there you go.
0: And for those of you still listening, go be great.